Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm David Obelt. Some know me as the Malcontent, and I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Thank you for joining me today, February 4th, 2024, on the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast. It's been 3,660 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27th, 2014, and one year and 345 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. We're going to cover four topics in today's podcast. First, we're going to visit each area of operation, discuss the objectives for each combatant, and grade their results in January based on those objectives. I know. We haven't done this in a really long time. Second, I'm going to talk about a critical story that is not getting enough coverage. We had this up on our news website, and we've had it on our social channels. The Zafrogia nuclear power plant is falling apart, and the possibility of a nuclear accident is growing, and this has to get talked about. Third, I'll talk about drone warfare, how fast it's evolved in the last 23 months, Ukraine's new tactics, and why this isn't a complete solution to solve Ukraine's ammunition crisis. And that leads to our fourth story. Editorially, we try to stay away from politics because of how polarized the political landscape is, particularly in the United States. However, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has turned continued military aid to Ukraine into a purely political issue. Ignoring this story and not talking about it would be journalistic malfeasance. So if Mike Johnson is your guy, you're from the United States, just go ahead and skip the fourth story and we'll probably all be friends at the end of this podcast. The Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's reports includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands, North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, the truth, because the truth matters. Previously, once a month, we used to follow the line of conflict, go through each area of operation, and provide a letter grade on how well Russia and Ukraine has performed against their objectives. Uh, And the objectives that are established are based on the analysis of our team. We haven't done this in a long time, and we're bringing it back. And so with that said, we start in Kharkiv and Luhansk. Let's talk about the Russian objective. By March 13th, 2024, recapture all of the territory east of the Oskio River, push the Ukrainian forces to the west of the Oskio River, the right bank, recapture all of the Luhansk Oblast, maximize casualties, and terrorize Ukrainian civilians near the line of conflict. So how did Russia do in January against those objectives? When it comes to capturing territory, Russia did terrible. They get D minus. They made a small advance north of Kupiansk, and they made a small advance about 17 to 20 kilometers east of Kupiansk. Neither of these advances provided a tactical or strategic advantage to Russian forces. 
And Russia has lost a lot of personnel in their offensive efforts to the point that they had to go into an operational pause and reconsolidate. There's a lot of rumors from a Forbes article that came out today that everybody is jumping on that Russia has assembled 500 tanks and 600 infantry fighting vehicles, and they are preparing a massive advance into uh, the Kupiansk area. We're skeptical. Analysts are looking into that data. But at the time of this recording, we are very skeptical of those claims. So when it comes to territorial control change, Russia gets a D minus. Maximize casualties and terrorize Ukrainian civilians. When it comes to maximize casualties, Russia gets a D. And we're going to get into why Russia gets a D for that later in the podcast when we talk about drone warfare. Terrorize Ukrainian civilians. Don't get me wrong. I'm not praising Russia here. I'm not, yeah, this is great. This is terrible. Russia's done a really solid job of terrorizing civilians. They are absolutely pounding the city of Kharkiv. Dozens of civilians were killed in January. Hundreds were wounded uh, across all of the oblasts, not just concentrated in the city. Uh, Russia's doing a great job of what Russia does when their offensive operations don't go well terrorize civilians. Now, let's talk about uh, Ukrainian objectives. Hold and harden their defensive lines, protect civilians, and civilian infrastructure. When it comes to hold and harden defensive lines, Ukraine gets a C plus. Wait a minute, you just said that Russia gets a D minus. Why does Ukraine get a C plus? When we were talking about Russia, I said that Russia did make a couple of advances. Yeah, but you said that they weren't tactically or strategically significant. Both of the advances that Russia made in January were made because Ukrainians made mistakes, and that's why they get a C plus. The truth matters. Both of these Russian advances occurred because of communication problems between Ukrainian units, and Ukraine can't afford to make any mistakes because of personnel shortages and ammunition shortages. What about protect civilians? This is a tough one to grade. One of the challenges that Ukraine has is when Russia launches missiles from the Belgorod region of Russia, there's only two to three minutes from launch to that missile landing uh, in the city of Kharkiv or in the northern parts of the Kharkiv Oblast. That isn't enough time, even with SAMPT or Patriot, to identify, track, come up with a firing solution, and launch an interceptor. This is a huge problem. And one of the other issues that Ukraine has is, uh -uh uh-uh-uh, you can't use our weapons, meaning the West, to attack inside of Russia. So Russia just moves around these S-300 launchers and the North Korean source KN-23 launchers, and Ukraine just doesn't have a viable answer here. And it wouldn't matter if this was the United States and the United States was being forced to fight under the same rules of engagement. Uh, There would be no solution for this problem. So I'm going to give Ukraine what we would call a gentleman's B. Moving on. Let's go ahead and talk about the Donbass. We'll start in the Northeast Donbass, and we'll start again with Russia. What are their objectives? Capture Chavs of Yar and Konstantinovka by March 13th, 2024. 
set conditions to attack Kramatorsk and Slavyansk and Siversk and terrorize Ukrainian civilians. How has Russia done in the month of January? Again, they get a D minus. <laughs> they get a D minus minus. This is really close to an F. Ukrainian forces actually made marginal gains on the northwest flank of the city of Bakhmut and south of Bakhmut. This isn't the direction that Russia is supposed to be traveling per dear leader, Vladimir, or as we now are calling him, Vlad the Impaler Putin. There isn't much to add here. They, they get a D minus minus. How about Ukraine? Well, their objectives are very simple. Defend Seversk, Chasovyar, and Konstyavika. Stabilize more advantageous defensive lines on the north flank of Bakhmut for winter. Harden their existing defensive lines and minimize civilian casualties. So how has Ukraine done here? Ukraine gets a B plus. They've done a very good job on what's called active defense. Active defense is when you're not just sitting in your bunkers in your trenches waiting for your enemy to continue just attack you over and over again. You're taking advantage of enemy's mistakes. You are probing for weaknesses. You attack when your enemy is most vulnerable, even though you're on defense, uh, during their troop rotations, uh, during a failed attack. And there's been very heavy casualties in a particular area in the defensive lines. You're doing what we call point attacks. You are going to concentrate a force, and you are going to try to hit an area to drive a wedge, push them back. Ukraine's doing, in January, a really good job uh, in this part of Ukraine. And there's other activity that is going on right on the northwestern edge of Horlovica, and that's occupied Horlovica. And Ukraine is inching into that area. Russia isn't talking about it much. The general staff isn't talking about much. We know some more things about this area, and we have been respecting operational security. As far as minimize civilian casualties, now we're further away from the Russian border. Ukrainian air defenses have better capacity to identify a launch, track, come up with a firing solution, shoot something down. And considering the ammunition situation, Ukraine gets a gentleman's B. What about southwest Donetsk? What are the Russian objectives there? Capture the Evdivka area of operation by March 13, 2024. Capture the remainder of the Donetsk Oblast and terrorize Ukrainian civilians. How is Russia doing here? If we look at capture the Evdivka AO, Russia gets a C+. They're making progress. That's why they get the C+. They are suffering unfathomable casualties. Now, if you're a subscriber and get our situation reports, there's information about how to become a subscriber and get our five to six day a week situation reports in the podcast description. Or if you're a regular podcast listener, if this is your first time, welcome. I hope you come back. We have assessed since October, boy, there's a lot of sibilance in that sentence. Uh, we have assessed since October that the Russian Ministry of Defense is all in. They do not care about casualties. They do not care about losses. They do not care about the tactical or the strategic. Orders are, you will capture Evdivka at 
all costs. And there is no reason to believe that Russia is going to walk away from this strategy. It just doesn't matter. They have lost hundreds of tanks, visually confirmed, hundreds of armored vehicles. The losses here, visually confirmed, since October 6th, are a thousand pieces of hardware between artillery and drones and tanks and armored personnel carriers and infantry fighting vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. They have lost tens of thousands of troops. There are a lot of videos that we see uh, that we're not sharing in the situation report because uh, they're too much. Uh, and uh, if you have been a subscriber for almost two years, uh, you know um, we sometimes share some really violent graphic content in the situation report. This is beyond it. We don't get into casualty numbers in any conflict because there's three absolutes in war. Uh, a combatant will minimize their own losses, they will exaggerate their enemy's losses, and they will exaggerate their civilian losses. With that said, uh, I am of the belief that Ukraine, quite frankly, is too honest in this area. That's my opinion. You're not paying me for my opinion. You're paying me for my analysis. So we're just going to leave it at that. The reason you get this preamble is... Ukraine has been saying, uh, you know, 800, 900, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 Russian troops killed in a day. And starting in October, based on the videos that we were seeing, particularly around Evdivka, now those numbers they're saying are across all of Ukraine, across the entire line of conflict, we are starting to become believers in the numbers that Ukraine is providing. This is how bad the losses are. There's a report that came out yesterday from Ukraine. They started this project where uh, Russian families can reach out to Ukrainian officials and go, where's my family member? The Russian Ministry of Defense isn't telling me anything. The local commissariat isn't telling me anything. My, my husband, my sons, uh, my brother's commander is refusing to tell me anything. They're just saying they're missing. Where is my family member? In 78 days, Ukraine has received 214,000 inquiries. Now, again, this is from the start of the war. This isn't just Avdivka. And they have been able to confirm in those 78 days, um, we regret to inform you that your person that you care about, your loved one, is deceased, 11,000. They've been killed in action. We can prove it. Um, we have their body, and Russia doesn't want their body back. That leaves 204,000 people missing in action. Now, are there people that are messing with these bots? Of course they are. Are there potentially duplicates? Is somebody's father reaching out asking, and then that same person's wife, who lives in another part of Russia, also reaching out? Because Russia's become so repressive uh, are they going to go ahead and communicate over the internet in a phone call that, hey, we should do this? Probably not. So there's going to be duplicates in there. So let's say the duplicates are 50%. That's 102,000 people missing in action. Off the books losses. Uh, this is a stunning number. And Russia doesn't care. They don't care. Bakhmut is a little different because that was PMC Wagner and Russia loves using 
private military companies and indigenous people. Uh, when I say indigenous, I mean the Ukrainians that live in the occupied territories as their proxy forces. They don't like to put their own troops uh, in harm's way. Conservatively, there's 100,000 people missing in action. It, it's a stunning number. Well, wait, if Russia's all in, if they're all in to capture Avdivka, and it doesn't matter, we're back to the Bakhmut question a year later. Should Ukraine withdraw? We're going to talk about that a little bit, and I'm going to give you my assessment. And we talk about how Ukraine is doing against their objectives. Their objectives are real simple. Hold and harden existing defensive lines, prevent the capture of Avdivka, and protect civilian lives. If we look just at the month of January, Ukraine gets a B plus. The only thing that prevented the A, quite frankly, an A plus, is Russian forces used a sewer tunnel. They did some additional digging. They popped up into the southern part of Avdivka, right on the southern edge. There was a group of Ukrainian troops that got surrounded. They ran low on ammunition. About half of them were killed. The other half were forced to surrender. Inexplicably, Russia didn't reinforce these troops that captured this little south corner of Avdivka. And inexplicably, instead of those Russian troops digging in and building a defensive perimeter, they fanned out uh, across a pretty big area of houses. And Ukrainian tanks just came in and drove up and down the roads, firing at point-blank range. We had all of these videos in our situation reports. They were highlighted in the podcast. It, it was just stunning to watch. And four days later, the Russian troops were forced to withdraw. And it was a massacre when they withdrew because they withdrew as a column, which doesn't make sense. And they got shredded by Ukrainian drones. And... Vladimir Putin, uh, to thunderous applause last week at what is technically his first campaign speech of the sham elections that are coming up. By the way, that's why March 13th, March 13th, because Putin wants his W, he wants his win for the election. And he's probably not going to get his March 13th win anywhere. Hey, we captured 19 houses in Avdivka and got thunderous applause. When he said that, the city had been under siege for 707 days. We've captured 19 houses. Uh, there's no other grade to give here that a B plus. And, 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 and if I was Ukraine, metaphorically speaking, and I'd like their say their college professor, what do you mean I get a B plus? Um, it's it's because of these 19 houses. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to the Ukrainian 47th Motor Infantry Brigade. Uh, this is the unit that in June and July in Zaporizhia had massive problems. There was a lot of publicity about issues with the command structure, low morale, just a ton of issues with this unit. To quote the movie Full Metal Jacket, they have been born again hard, and I mean that in all due respect. I am calling them the new gods of war. Uh, this is the unit where if you saw the video of the two Bradley fighting vehicles taking out its mission kill damage uh, of a T-90M. Yeah, that's the 47th. What they've been doing on the north flank of Edifka, historians will be writing about that decades from now. What they have accomplished is incredible. And they, as a unit, 
they get an A+. Spent a lot of time talking about Avdivka. Let's move through the rest of it very quickly. Uh, Russia captured Marenka, what was left of it the last few streets in January. We have to acknowledge that. That is a tactical success because there's nothing left of that city. There's no way to turn this into a logistics hub. And Russia has only made marginal gains to the west of Marenka and a little bit to the south. They haven't been able to build on that capture, which happened on January 10th. So Ukraine did the right thing here uh, in withdrawing from those last few streets and moved to more advantageous defensive lines, which they're doing a very good job of holding. And that's my assessment for the Donbass. All right, next up, Zafrogia. Russian objective here, very simple. Retake positions lost over the summer and terrorize Ukrainian civilians. How did Russia do here in January? We're just looking at the box of January. Russia gets a D minus because they've lost territory in several places. Russia made gains in December and they've given some of those gains back. It became very clear in January that Russia has deprioritized this area the number of attacks are way down, the intensity of fighting is down significantly, and the tactics that are being employed show a combatant that really isn't interested in trying to move the line of conflict in this area anymore. We're seeing harassment attacks, positional fighting, and reconnaissance of squad size units. And this is helping Ukraine. It provides a hint that something is going on with personnel or ammunition. We're going to talk about Ukraine's ammunition crisis, and it is a crisis, but Russia has its own ammunition crisis that's going on. The key difference is, is that Ukraine's is worse, and Russia is taking advantage of that. Ukraine's objective here, hold their existing defensive positions, build an echelon defense of static fortifications, and minimize civilian casualties. Ukraine gets an A. They get a straight up A. I know it's February 4th, but as I am recording this, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky was in Rabutin uh, on the absolute closest edge of the line of conflict. If Zelensky and his entourage and his security team can drive right up to the line of conflict like that, get a briefing and issue awards right there in that village and then drive back. That indicates how strong the defensive positions are for Ukraine and the confidence that they have in this area. Finally, let's go ahead and talk about what's been going on in Kherson. The Russian objective, prevent Ukrainian forces from reaching the T-2206 highway south of the Konka River, terrorize the civilian population and free Kherson, and maintain their ground lines of communications, G-locks, to Zafrogia. What does Russia get here? They get a C plus. It's a complicated situation. On the one hand, Russia has prevented Ukraine from taking physical control of the T-2206 highway. On the other hand, Ukrainian drone operators have made use of that highway almost impossible. Overused term, fire control. Oh, Ukraine has fire control. Doesn't mean that you can't use that road. 
just means it's very difficult to use that road. And Russia is suffering ridiculous losses uh, on the roads now on the left bank of the Konka and Dnipro rivers. Let's talk about Ukraine. Maintain the existing bridgeheads on the left banks of the Dnipro and Konka rivers, lock Russian troops and reserves in place, and minimize civilian casualties. How is Ukraine doing here? Uh, they get an A minus. Uh, January probably couldn't have gone any better, given everything that is against Ukraine in this area. They have maintained the existing bridgeheads. Had some news come in just a few days earlier, I might have given the A plus because uh, there is now evidence that came out right at the beginning of February that Ukraine has expanded their bridgeheads, expanded their control of Krenki, the this 10-kilometer-long uh, village of farms and dachas. These bridgeheads have forced Russia to lock a significant number of troops in place. And this is a core part of the strategy, and this may be one of the reasons why fighting has subsided further north in Zafrazhia. So Ukraine had a pretty good month, and Russia has had a pretty rough month. But there's forces at work that are trying to change that math. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to story number two, the Zafrgia nuclear power plant. Back in June of 2023, the whole world's attention was on Zafrgia because there were reports and rumors that Russia was planning to sabotage the plant. Russian occupiers were starting to become uncooperative with the International Atomic Energy Agency and their inspectors that are there. We'll get into that in a minute. And we did a piece during this time that explained that it would be very difficult to create a Chernobyl or Fukushima-style accident. Nothing is impossible. The odds are never zero, but it would be very difficult to do. The danger passed. Some things that needed to get addressed at the plant got addressed, and the world is focusing on other conflicts. That was then. This is now. Eight months have gone by. Leaks, power outages, low staffing, and there's no maintenance plan. Europe's largest nuclear plant is literally falling apart. So let's talk about this. Three reactors have various leaks, and Russia doesn't have any plan to fix them. So five of the six reactors at ZNPP are in cold shutdown. Reactor four is in hot shutdown, and they need that to provide steam for plant operations and heat for the nearby town of Enerhodar. Now, on November 17th, IAE inspectors were told by the Russian occupiers that boron had been detected in the secondary cooling circuit of reactor four, and it was in hot shutdown at the time. Now, boron is added to the primary cooling and steam circuits in modern reactors as an extra safety measure. Uh, nuclear reactions don't like boron, but it's not supposed to be in the secondary cooling system. Very small trace amounts are okay. 
Four days later, the reactor is moved from hot shutdown to cold shutdown. Russia says boron leak was within acceptable levels and we're not going to repair it. And this was the second unscheduled shutdown of Reactor 4 in 2023. On August 10th, Reactor 4 had been shut down after a water leak was discovered in one of its steam generators. They also found that they needed to clean the heat exchangers, and they did maintenance on the reactor's transformers and emergency diesel generators. That's very important because we're going to get into how this is connected. On December 22nd, Inspectors with the IEA found boric acid deposits on the valves, a pump, and on the floors of several rooms in the containment building of Reactor 6. Russian occupier officials said the leak was coming from a cracked boric acid tank, and it's not going to get repaired. On January 3rd, the director of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi, published these findings in the January 3rd update. And the on-site inspectors were barred from accessing parts of Reactor 6 for almost two weeks. And then on February 1st, the IEA reported that boric acid leaks have now been discovered in Reactor 1. So there are three reactors that have various leaks in them. And for two of the three, Russia has not set this as a priority to fix these leaks. We don't know what the status is at this time for Reactor 1. The other issue is the unreliability of the external power connections. Power plants, not just nuclear plants, rely on external electricity to run the plant. Well, that doesn't make sense. They make electricity. Why do they have to get electricity from somewhere else? If the plant is shut down to go into maintenance or shuts down unexpectedly, it still needs electricity to run the plant. So by getting its electricity from somewhere else, this is a added layer of safety. The next one down, if you lose all of those power connections, power plants have backup uh, generators to generate their own electricity. And in the case of ZNPP, they have 20 diesel generators and guidelines to keep a minimum supply of at least 10 days of fuel. If you were to lose all power at ZNPP, the reactors in cold shutdown can go more than three weeks without water circulation before you start approaching having a meltdown. One that's in hot shutdown is only going to go about 27 hours. And the worst case scenario for a nuclear power plant, the plant can operate in what's called island mode. That's when a reactor or reactors are used to generate its own on-site power to maintain plant operations. But this is inherently dangerous because it requires bringing a reactor online and you have no margin for error if anything else breaks. And none of the ZNPP's reactors have produced electricity in the last 18 months. Before Russia's takeover, ZNPP had 10 external power connections, four 750 kilovolt and six 330 kilovolt lines. Today, there's two, a single 750 kilovolt and a single 330 kilovolt line. March 1st of last year, Russia is systematically trying to destroy Ukraine's energy infrastructure. And in the Nikopol Rayon, which is on the other side of the Dnipro River, uh, they heavily damage a substation for the 330 kilovolt line. And that disconnects that line to ZNPP. And Ukraine tells the IAEA, we're under constant attack. We can't bring engineers there to fix that. At that point, 
there's only a single 750 kilovolt line. Historically, power had come from the nearby Zaporizhia thermal power plant. And back in March, Russia said, well, the switchyard between these two power plants are damaged. So the IEA inspector said, oh, well, we would like to see the damage so we understand what needs to be fixed. We can help you get parts. We can help you get information. And the Russian occupier said, nah, we don't want you seeing that. But you know what? It's going to get repaired next week. And this went on for three months. June 2nd, Rafael Grossi says, and I quote, our experts must access the ZTPP to see for themselves what the current situation is like and whether it might be possible to restore backup power there, unquote. On June 11th, he repeated his request with slightly stronger language uh, to see the switchyard. And then five days later, Grossi went to the plant for himself. He joined the rotation of the inspectors. And this is also at the same time when there were all these rumors that are starting to swirl of sabotage being planned at the plant. And then magically, Grossi got to go see the switchyard. And even more magic, it was fixed two weeks later. But there was a misconfiguration in the repairs. And when power failed on the 750 kilovolt line, the 330 kilovolt line didn't automatically roll over. So the plant had to go back to the on-site diesel generators while the technicians solved the problem. On November 15th, reactor six all by itself unexpectedly lost all power for 90 minutes, briefly shutting down the cooling circuits before they were able to switch over to the diesel generators, but just for reactor six. We still don't know why that happened. Then on November 26, when there was the Black Sea megastorm, power was lost from the single 750 kilovolt line. Uh, damage was down to the south of the plant. Uh, everything rolled over to the 330 kilovolt line fine, but reactor four didn't energize and the on-site diesel generators didn't turn on either. And reactor four was in hot shutdown at that time. They were able to get the generators turned on, and they discovered that during the August 2023 unscheduled maintenance, the backup systems were misconfigured on Reactor 4, and that got fixed. Skip ahead to December 2nd. Both external power lines failed. First, the 330 kilovolt line disconnected due to a, quote, external grid fault. Five hours later, the 750 kilovolt line also disconnected, and during that outage, power was lost to all four cooling pumps for reactor four again. And that was again running in hot shutdown. So they were forced to start moving reactor four into cold shutdown, which could have left the plant with an inadequate supply of steam to run. Diesel generators were brought online, power was restored, the 750 kilovolt line was reconnected, and they brought reactor four back into hot shutdown. Here's the other problem. In order for the IAEA to do their job, they have to have access to the plant. And Russia is continuing to block that access. Last year, pictures come out showing that Russia has put gun emplacements, defensive positions on the top of the reactor vessels. And the IEA asks for months that they want to see the top of the reactors to make sure that the pillars of nuclear safety and international humanitarian law are not being violated. They're finally permitted to get to the roofs of reactor two, three, and four. The inspectors go, everything is fine, but Russia isn't letting them to see the tops of reactors one, five, or six. And they were going to on December 19th, 
And then at the last minute, they're told, yeah, no, you're not going to be able to see the top of those reactors due to, quote, unquote, security reasons. Inspectors have been also blocked from consecutively walking through the six turbine halls. That is one after the other. When the IEA started their mission there on September 1st, military vehicles were found in some of the maintenance areas. There were no heavy offensive weapons or large caches of ammunition that were found, but a continuous walkthrough would permit the IAE inspectors to, one, confirm that Russia isn't playing a shell game, that is, moving equipment around so that they don't see it, and they could see how many people are staffing the plant. Is there adequate staffing in all six of these halls? Because we're going to get into staffing. Uh, that's the next problem that's going on there. And despite repeated requests, they haven't been allowed into all areas of the turbine hall since 2022, even when they're allowed to go into them one at a time. Russia had placed land and directional mines in restricted areas and on the perimeter of the plant after their occupation. Grossi has been unhappy about this, but he's used pretty soft language. And the IEA said that uh, th where they're located doesn't violate nuclear safety, but, you know, it's like, hey, they're not supposed to be there. In November, Russia took them away. I guess they were feeling a little more confident about their fall-winter offensive at that time because in late January, they put them back. The other thing that's happened is starting in December, so uh, technically two months ago, uh, IEA is no longer allowed to talk to new workers at ZNPP about their training, their credentials, what they know. And despite repeated requests, Russian operator Rosatom has refused to provide a comprehensive site maintenance plan for 2024 to the point that the IEA has gone, we give up. You guys don't have a plan. Russian occupiers over a year ago disconnected the online radiation monitoring systems so the IEA team has to take manual readings twice a day using a backpack system. And then they have to give that information to Russia, who then shares it twice a day with the IEA after scrubbing it. Final thing is there's a huge staffing crisis. Before Russia expanded its war of aggression, there were 11,500 employees working at ZNPP. Russian forces Occupy and Hodar. There's a brief fight at the power plant itself. Some employees immediately flee, but a lot of them stayed due to their sense of duty to nuclear safety. They can't leave. They have to run the plant, and they are supposed to be protected under international law. Since Russia's occupation of the plant, uh, employees and their families have been interrogated, kidnapped, and tortured. There's been disappearances. In Enerhodar, the residents that live there under occupation have reported extrajudicial arrests, disappearances, robberies, evictions, mostly at the hand of Chechen troops. Fast forward to September of 2022. Russian state Duma illegally annexes the Zafrogia Oblast, and this goes into effect in early October. After the illegal annexation, Energo Adams employees who haven't aligned themselves with Russia, didn't turn out to be traitors, there's a hand up full of them that turned out to be traitors, are being forced to become Russian citizens, to go through passportization, and they're under constant coercion to sign employment contracts with Ross Adam. Some gave up, others fled, 
and others have resisted. On January 25th, Raphael Grossi is in front of the United Nations Security Council, and he says, quote, operating on significantly reduced staff who are under unprecedented psychological pressure, which despite the reactors being shut down, is not sustainable. Now, on February 1st, the IAEA was notified that all remaining employees of ZNPP who had not accepted Russian citizenship and were still employees of Energo Atom were essentially laid off. They are barred from entering the plant. And Russian occupiers told the on-site IE team there, quote, there are enough certified personnel at the plant and all positions are fully filled. According to the IAEA, the plant is staffed at just 39% of its pre-occupation level, 4,500 workers, and Russia, by its own admission, admits it's not fully staffed because they're looking at 940 job applications, according to Russia. So what happens to the employees that are laid off? Well, if they want to leave the occupied territories, it's going to require a journey through Russia. And that's a risk of filtration, interrogation, and arrest. So how bad is it? After Rafael Grossi spoke to the United Nations Security Council, he held a brief press conference. One of the reporters asked, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most dangerous and 1 being most secure, what would you rank Zafrigia nuclear power plant right now? Here are the words of Rafael Grossi. Well, as I was telling um, her just a minute ago, uh, I think that there are days where you are uh, near 10 and there are days that nothing seems to happen. Grossi was also asked about the level of cooperation Ukraine and Russia were providing to the IAEA. This is what he had to say when he was asked that question. Yes, I would say by and large, yes. Uh, of course, there are, there are um, moments of uh, frustration, mine and theirs, I guess, because sometimes when I say things that they don't appreciate or that I, or they would prefer me to say differently, um, there is tension uh, there, but uh, this is a little bit um, what the IEA is all about. And this happens to us when it comes to Iran, when it comes to the DPRK. Uh, people sometimes do not appreciate what we have to say, but we have to say it anyways. Please permit me to move to personal opinion for just a moment here. I don't think that holding up Iran and North Korea as examples of the success of the International Atomic Energy Agency are the best case examples that they can be holding up. That's just me. So let's recap. There are multiple leaks now in the plant, at least in three reactors that we know about. There is external power connection problems that aren't improving. There have been multiple maintenance mistakes, and they are short-staffed, and Russia isn't being particularly cooperative with the IAEA. Compared to Iran and North Korea, they are, but again, I don't think that that's a great example, that raises the question, what could go wrong? In June, we spoke with experts in this field, and we were told that there are four possible scenarios for accident or intentional sabotage scenarios for ZNPP. Scenario number one, radioactive water or steam release. And they believe that this was the number two most likely thing that could happen either as an accident or an act of intentional sabotage. And this would be 
the easiest act of intentional sabotage and the easiest one to make it look like an accident. Releases of radioactive steam or radioactive water is the most common type of accident at a nuclear power plant. And the reality is it would contaminate a limited area. It would be mild to moderate levels of radiation. Any accidental radiation leak is bad. Any act of nuclear terrorism it would be unprecedented, but this is not a scenario that would make Ukraine or other areas uninhabitable. Scenario two, breach or loss of coolant to the spent fuel storage. All nuclear power plants have on-site spent fuel storage. It is either temporary storage before it moves to its permanent storage location or reprocessing, or in some cases, because there is no generalized place, it's stored there at the site. ZNPP has storage both in the reactor vessels and uh, on-site, but outside of the plant. Uh, in a worst-case scenario, the intentional destruction of these containment vessels on the outside would have a similar impact to a dirty bomb, a radiological event. It would spread highly radioactive material, but over a relatively small area, especially, say, when we compare this to something like Chernobyl. Uh, the irradiated material would be carried by the wind. It's going to spread mild to moderate radioactivity over a larger area than a steam release or a water release. Cleanup would be very complex and expensive. And there is the potential that a small area, again, when we compare this to the two worst accidents of the modern age, Fukushima and Chernobyl, uh, that would be left uninhabitable. If the spent fuel storage were to lose all of its circulation uh, of its coolant, the materials will start to heat up and eventually they will burn through their containment vessels and you're back to this breach scenario. Number three, this is the least likely one, which is meltdown, whether that is intentional uh, or because of gross neglect. ZNPP doesn't have all of the safety systems of its Western peers, uh, but it is a very well-engineered plant. The reactors are encased in a protective vessel. The concrete and steel reinforce external containment buildings are capable of taking a massive explosion from the inside. They can be hit by a commercial airliner from the outside. There are boron ejection systems. They're leaking multiple backups. If there was an accidental full meltdown, it's possible because nothing is zero, but it is nearly impossible. And even at the event of a full meltdown of one or all of the reactors, you would still have to breach the outer containment vessels, which have been designed to take direct hits from cruise missiles and have airliners flown directly into them. If the unthinkable were to happen, yeah, uh, you're talking most of Ukraine, parts of Russia, many parts of Eastern and Central Europe heavily irradiated. But one of the scary things that people were saying in June of last year was that the plants could explode, that each reactor could explode like a 20 megaton bomb. That's inaccurate. That just isn't true. I had said at the start that scenario one, a water and steam release was the second most possible. What did the experts say was the most possible scenario? Economic terrorism. Faced with having to withdraw from ZNPP, experts told us that Russian occupiers could intentionally contaminate the inside of the reactor vessels, rendering the plant unusable. And while the radiation risk outside of the plant 
would be low because it's never zero. It would be very low, but it's still possible releasing large amounts of radiation in one, some, or all of the containment buildings is going to block access when Ukraine takes the plant back. And it would also make attempts to repair the plant not only complex and dangerous, but potentially economically unviable. And that's what they believe is the most likely scenario. What can you do? We wrote a story for Google News. There is a link in the podcast description to that story. Our subscribers got access to it on Friday. We made this public on Saturday. Uh, if you go into Google News, at least at the time we recorded this, if you type in Zafrogia, and that's with the Z-H-Z-H-I-A, the proper Ukrainian spelling, um, we are the number one story. We're also the number one story for Zafrogia nuclear power plant in the top three if you type in ZNPP. So the story is getting traction. Um, share that story. Interact with that story. Uh, our goal here is to draw attention to some larger publications and to get people focusing on the reality that the world's attention right now is all in the Middle East, but there's a ticking time bomb in the middle of Ukraine and there's not enough people paying attention to it. In the last six weeks, Ukraine has attacked seven sites of Russian oil industry within Russia uh, with varying degrees of success. Three of those attacks have severely damaged or destroyed the distillation units at refineries. And a fourth attack was a near miss, just missed a hydrocracker. And hydrocracker is used for distillation. I'll get into what all of that means. Ukraine really knows what they're doing here. If you severely damage or destroy the distillation unit at an oil refinery, you have essentially crushed the heart of that refinery. Without the distillation unit, everything downstream from that is slowed down or stopped. And distillation units aren't something that are just sitting in a warehouse somewhere. The Luke oil refinery that was hit in Volgograd over the weekend that particular unit had been shut down for a 13-month overhaul, including the distillation unit that took 13 months and cost 10 billion rubles. At that particular plant, the distillation unit is completely destroyed. The tower collapsed. What have we learned in the last six weeks? Ukraine has developed a new drone. It has a range of at least 1,250 kilometers. It is very accurate. They are demonstrating that this has a CEP, circular error probability, that looks like it's around 10 meters. It has a much bigger warhead than the Beaver drones that Ukraine was using last summer to hit random areas in Russia. Lastly, it appears to be very resistant to electronic warfare, difficult to track, and difficult to shoot down. These are pinpoint attacks. When we compare to Russia, who will lob a Shahed-136 uh, drone uh, sourced from Iran, or they will fire a Iskandar missile at a Ukrainian refinery, if the missile hits anywhere in the refinery, Russian mill bloggers all pile on. Great victory. We've destroyed refinery. Refineries are very large places. There are lots of places that you can damage or destroy that won't significantly impact the capabilities of that refinery. Before the weekend attack in Volgograd, 
Russia's gasoline production was already down 37%. And Russia's facing another problem. Gasoline formulations need to change based on seasonality. The gasoline that you use in the winter is different than the gasoline that you use in the summer. This is one of the reasons, if you're from the United States, that our prices for motor fuel start to go up every spring, uh, and then they go back down in the fall. There's this issue of demand, but there is also a period where this changeover in formulation is happening that refineries are shut down so they can do this changeover. Russia's at 37% loss capacity from these three previous attacks and a undisclosed accident at another refinery before we even had this attack. And they are coming up in the next 30 to 45 days to have to do this seasonal formulation changeover. This won't slow the Russian war machine because Russia's moved to a wartime economy. Fuel for the military is going to take priority, even to the detriment of the civilian population. Luke Oil, before this attack, had already suspended all of their international exports of refined gasoline. This is a big problem because this is how Russia pays their bills. Uh, a lot of the tax money that comes into state coffers is from the sale of hydrocarbon products. If Russia has to stop sell these to meet their own internal demand, that starts cutting off money to the Russian war machine. The other thing is everything is tied to the price of a barrel of oil. Tomatoes don't walk to the store. Tomatoes are put in a truck, and the truck brings them to the store where somebody buys them. The price of motor fuel goes up. The price of everything goes up. And Russia's already trying to tamp down inflation. Ukraine really knows what they're doing here with these attacks. The other thing that's happened in the last week is the amount of Russian dooming in their telegram channels and their social media circles among mill bloggers and soldiers is off the chart and it's accelerating. And what's remarkable about this is we're now in an era in Russia where doing this can get you put in a prison cell. If you're a Russian soldier and you say this stuff out loud, it gets you sent to a Storm Z unit where you're used in a meat assault and you get to join the 200,000 missing in action that family members are looking for. So it is remarkable the amount of dooming that has started in the last week. And a lot of that dooming is centered around drones. Ukraine's use of drones has increased exponentially. Our electronic warfare systems don't work at all. Ukraine's accuracy of their drones is vastly better than ours. Their pilots are vastly better than ours. We can't advance. We can't set up an armored column because the drones just come in and wipe everything out and the operators know exactly where to attack us. Ukraine promised that they were going to build a million drones themselves in 2024. So about 83,000 a month. Now, I can't tell you with authority that they reached that goal of 83,000 in the month of January. They are definitely building a lot more drones than they were 60 days ago. Here's the problem. Drones aren't a full-on substitute for artillery. And that will lead us into this last probably controversial part of the podcast. With the exception of the sewage pipe at Avdivka, 
where Russia has found success as Ukraine's artillery ammunition is running out is attacking during periods of low visibility, bad weather, high fog, because drones can't operate. And Ukraine doesn't have the artillery to provide additional support. They got plenty of artillery pieces. They just don't have the artillery shells. So any day it's foggy, any day the winds are 50, 60, 70 kilometers an hour, any day the ceiling is very low, heavy rain, heavy snow, Ukraine's drone operations become very limited. And Russia knows this and they're taking advantage of it. The best solution is when you have drones supported by artillery. Artillery doesn't care about weather. Yes, you need to be able to spot your target. Yes, you need to be able to know if you've hit the target so you can start firing for effect. But drones can't operate at all. The other thing about artillery is there is immediacy with artillery where a drone may have to be flown in or multiple drones may have to be flown in. When you have both, they become force multipliers and it becomes even harder for Russia to launch attacks. There's another benefit to this drone strategy that, again, works when the weather cooperates. Ukraine's main offensive strength doesn't have to be all up on the forward-most line of friendly troops, right on that line of conflict. Drone operators can stand off. Drone operators can conceal where they are far easier than concealing the location of a self-propelled howitzer. If we go back to last year and Bakhmut, the ratio of losses, Ukraine versus Russia, dropped from maybe one to three. And for a couple of weeks, it was one to one. That's not sustainable. It's not sustainable for Ukraine. It's not sustainable for any force that is on defense. Right now, the ratio is one to 10. A bad day is one to seven. And there are days that it is much better than one to 10. This is a lot more sustainable Ukraine has flipped the math from a year ago because first, they're not holding positions at any cost. They're willing to do withdrawals to more advantageous positions to preserve their troop strength. And they are withdrawing to better engineered and better prepared defenses. And in some cases, Russian troops are being lured into areas that are going to be extremely hard to defend. Swampy areas, lowlands. Uh, places where the limited Ukrainian artillery it is available prevents Russia from consolidating those gains. And by doing that, Ukraine creates a wider gray zone, which helps protect their troops and limit their losses. But without more artillery shells, without more support, every rainy day is going to be a bad day for Ukraine. And we just saw this in the northern part of Evdivka, where Russia made an advance and they took advantage of the weather. And this is going to continue to happen unless Ukraine gets more support. All right, now we are to story four. And if Mike Johnson is your boy, if you're proud of him, if you think he's doing all the right things... You could just stop listening now and we'll still be friends. Uh, you're probably going to be very spicy after listening to all of this segment. 
In the fall of 2023, the United States has to come up with its omnibus budget for fiscal year 2024. United States fiscal year runs from October to September. And Republicans want to just shut the government down. And when I say Republicans, I don't mean all Republicans. This is the Freedom Caucus, a, a group of 20 or 30 individuals that the truth matters. They're accelerationists. They just want to see the government structure as exists today destroyed, and they want to replace it with something else. They pass a continuing resolution to keep things funded, but take funding for Ukraine, this $61 billion request from the White House, off the table and start to tie it to border security. To keep the government from shutting down, at that time, Speaker Mike McCarthy had to cross the aisle and make a deal with the Democrats. And eight Republicans, led by Congressman Matt Gates, who is from Florida, they're called the Gates Eight, lead to vacate McCarthy from the speakership. And they are successful. And then there is this almost two-week period where we don't have a speaker. And Mike Johnson, who subscribes to the Seven Hills, was a election denier, was involved in the efforts to overturn the U.S. election in 2020, becomes the Speaker of the House. And through all of this, we continue to hear from Washington, Ukraine aid next week, Ukraine aid next week, Ukraine aid next week. And both parties would reach this place where they say, we're really close to a deal. We're going to let everybody know what it is. And then it gets blown up by Speaker Johnson. And we just went through one of these cycles again. Speaker Johnson said that any border deal and anything attached to Ukraine is dead on arrival in the House. In the U.S. Senate, there has been a good faith effort that has been going on to come up with a comprehensive package. And the Republicans that have looked at the now 280-page document have said that this is a really good reform package for immigration and the border. It is more than we ever expected we would get, and I don't want to get into that. I'm only talking about it because it is directly tied to Ukrainian aid. Now, on Saturday, Speaker Johnson says, nope, this is dead on arrival. He hasn't even seen the document. It doesn't matter what's in it. It's dead on arrival. My opinion, my assessment, I'm not surprised by this. Because if you're our subscribers or if you listen to the podcast and you've been listening to the assessments, uh, we've been saying for almost two months, Ukraine's not going to get another penny from the United States. And I'll take it a step further. There is not going to be a 2024 budget. Uh, the House plan is just to use continuing resolutions all the way through the end of the fiscal year and at the start of the 2025 fiscal year. Unless there is some huge change in political leadership or some outside event that forces an unforeseen political shift. Yesterday, February 3rd, Speaker Johnson puts out that they are going to move forward with a bill in the House to provide Israel with $17.6 billion in military aid. Nothing for Ukraine, nothing for Taiwan, nothing for the Philippines, and nothing for Palestinian refugees. The original bill 
that was going to be about $110 billion, included immigration reform, border, Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, the Philippines, and billions of dollars for Palestinian refugees. Speaker Johnson won't put this forward, despite the fact that a majority of Americans support continued military aid to Ukraine, including people from his party. Since the United States has stonewalled continued military aid to anyone, because we don't have a 2024 budget, Russia, Iran, and North Korea have gotten increasingly spicy. And so have their proxies. Venezuela and Guyana is a good example of this. The Houthis in Western Yemen, backed by Iran, another good example of this. And in the Baltic states and in Eastern Poland, Russia is now routinely jamming all GPS signals. It is impacting civil aviation, it is impacting commerce, and it's impacting cell phones and basic navigation for people like you and me. This morning, Speaker Johnson, who has blocked since he became Speaker of the House, military aid from the United States for any of our allies had the audacity, and that's the right word, to write, and I quote, for three years, the Biden administration has projected weakness on the world stage, and it's emboldened our adversaries. We must use every tool at our disposal to hold Iran accountable. That's a really interesting take, because Russia is buying Shahed-136 drones and ammunition from Iran for its war of aggression against Ukraine. Iran and Russia are in negotiations for Russia to potentially buy short-range ballistic missiles from Iran. And Iran is upgrading its air force from Russia uh, with Su-35s, just a handful of them, because Russia needs that equipment. Russia is at the center of the quote-unquote axis of resistance, not Iran. Iran is a piece of the puzzle of the so-called axis of resistance, which is Belarus, North Korea, Iran. You can squint and say Venezuela. You could squint and say the Bashir uh, administration in Syria. And you could squint and say some of the African nations in the coup belt, Central African Republic, and the rapid support forces supported by Russia in Sudan, where there's a genocide going on right now that nobody is talking about. Almost every European nation is saying out loud to their people, we have to start preparing for war. Not just we need to support Ukraine. We have to start preparing for war on our soil because war is coming. They weren't saying this six months ago. They're saying this because they're looking at the United States and going, the United States is abandoning Ukraine if the election goes the way that Mike Johnson wants it to go, there's going to be an effort to get the United States out of NATO. This was a goal that the previous administration, Donald Trump, had for his second term, was to withdraw from NATO. This is not secret stuff. It's out there. He said it aloud. Ah, come on. You're just salty at Republicans. You're just trying to scare us with this. Poland issued a NOTAM today notice to airmen, saying that between February 5th and May 5th, there could be unannounced military activity going on in the eastern 
third, two thirds of our country. And you cannot fly transponder off. You need to maintain contact with our towers all the time. Why did they issue this NOTAM? Because Poland has said out loud that they are considering intercepting any Russian missile, even in Ukraine, that they think even has a possibility of entering into Poland. Does it mean they're going to do it? Doesn't mean they're going to do it. And what's interesting is, and this is something we have assessed for almost two years, Vladimir Putin only knows one thing, force and the threat of force that is backed up to the point that it's like you're going to carry through with that threat. I, I, you mean it. He understands that. They back down every single time. Think of all the red lines. Think where we were 23 months ago. Everyone was so afraid of World War III and they're going to, they have nukes. Don't make Putin mad because he's got nukes. And every red line that the Kremlin has drawn has been crossed, obliterated dozens, in some cases, hundreds of times. There's been no nukes. There's been no 1,000 meter tidal wave destroying the United Kingdom. There hasn't been explosions in the United States, not yet at least, because Putin responds to threats of force by backing down. And he responds to any appeasement, any sign of weakness by taking advantage of it through aggression. Poland is sending a very clear message now. They're on the brink of becoming a unofficial combatant, so to speak, in the war of aggression that Russia is committing against Ukraine. How on earth has the policies of Speaker of the House Mike Johnson made the United States or Europe any more safer? And how can he have the audacity to point at the White House as the point of fault in this chain. Full stop. I'm not happy with Joe Biden and the slow rolling of weapons and ammunition to Ukraine, our broken promises on weapons systems that still haven't been delivered. Uh, people know as a group and as an organization and my own opinion that the debate of F-16s or not to do F-16s. That is the question that should have been done to almost two years ago. This should have started in April of 2022. And I am still of the camp that I'm skeptical we're going to see F-16s in Ukraine in 2024. And here's the other question. If the United States is out, and clearly Mike Johnson wants this for political reasons in an election year, where are the parts and the munitions for sustainment and repairs going to come from for the F-16s that go to Ukraine? David, that's going to come from the European countries. And how do they prepare for war themselves if everything is going to Ukraine? I want to end today's podcast leaving you with something to really think about. If we look at a world where Ukraine loses, and it is subjugated by Russia, every square meter of the country. So step one, the United States abandons Ukraine. The rest of Ukraine's allies can't sustain enough support on their own. Russia wins, takes over every inch of Ukraine. All the technology that Ukraine has developed, homegrown, 
using parts scrounged around from the world. The Mark V uncrewed surface vessels that just took out a Russian Corvette in a mass drone swarm attack. Russia gets those. These drones that can hit refineries 1,250 kilometers away with enough accuracy to target the most critical part of that refinery, Russia gets all of that. What happens to the Patriot systems that get left behind? Oh, yeah, that's right. Russia gets a hold of all of that, too. So Russia gets all that technology, and then they're going to sell that technology to China, Iran, North Korea. And Iran and North Korea will then turn around and sell that technology to anybody who has cash. Ironically, they prefer United States currency in those transactions. And then those organizations will use those weapons as they see fit. And step six becomes some Western warship gets sent to the bottom of the ocean by stolen Ukrainian technology that Russian captured because we let it happen that Russia sold to its axis of resistance because Russia is cash strapped and they sold it to anybody with the pulse. And you know what will happen in Washington, D.C.? Rabble, 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 rabble. How could have this happened? How could we have possibly seen this outcome? And the other thing is, warfare is forever changed. The world's militaries, with the exception of Ukraine, and I put Russia at number two because they're having to respond, are still equipped to fight a late 20th century war. That way of fighting is over. It's done. Drones have changed everything. Even the United States Air Force said about a week and a half ago that the era of being able to come in, establish absolute air superiority, and then use the Air Force to just blow up everything in sight, other than short bursts, in fighting with a near-peer or peer adversary, that era is over. It's over. And NATO's doctrine of fighting is all about establishing air superiority. There's a huge shift going on. Ukraine's at the tip of the spear of the new way of fighting, wars. That will be the way forward as we move to the middle of the 21st century, because we're almost a quarter of the way done with the 21st century. And the West can play 10, 20 years doing catch-up because Russia is gifted all of this knowledge and technology in a total Ukrainian defeat, or we can write a very small check compared to the rest of the United States budget and be the heirs of the new way of fighting going forward. Think about it. I'd like to thank you for joining me today. This was a much longer podcast than I planned. I'm like looking at the time and I'm like, yikes. Um, to all like 15 of you that listened to the end, thank you so much. Marina will be back tomorrow with the daily update. And if you like independent journalism, if you like our analysis, if you like today's podcast, and this is the first time you're hearing me, you can always become a patron for $5 a month. You get access to our situation reports. They come out five, six days a week. You get access to our flash reports. They come out several times a week. If it's really busy, there might be a couple of day. And you also get uh, sneak previews to our main news articles or investigative reporting before that is put out to everybody else. I think it's a lot of value for $5 a month. And 
it helps everybody continue to do what we do. My name is David Obelt. People know me as the malcontent. There is truly so much awful in the world right now, and it can be so easy to lose faith. Please be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.